topic tonight, which uh, this is one of those rare cases where I actually chose my own topic <clears throat> as an old Beatles fan. So the topic is, all you need is love, question, did the Beatles get it right? And uh, I'm going to uh, follow that ancient and annoying scholarly custom of beginning by defining my terms. So I thought, why not talk about the word love? What does what does love, the word love, really mean? So, uh, love. Love, uh, one meaning, per, perhaps not the most important meaning, is it means zero in tennis and squash. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that one. So, moving right along to other definitions. Um, Love, love means, uh, this is a standard dictionary definition, obviously other dictionaries will. Thank you for that, uh, we'll push the microphone away a little bit. Other uh, dictionaries will give other definitions, but basically an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. An example, babies fill parents with intense feelings of love Etc. It also means a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. It can mean a great interest and pleasure in something, his love for football. We share a love of music, for example. And if you go to the verb, uh, you just get the same ideas, but in action words, such as, uh, to feel a deep romantic or a sexual attachment to someone, to like very much, find pleasure in. So what's, what I found uh, very interesting about these definitions is what they don't say. And uh, these definitions, of course, what, what these definitions don't give are, um, these definitions don't give any requirement on the part of the person, any objective. There's, there's no sense that there's an objective state called love, which should be verified by certain kinds of behavior. It, the, these definitions simply say that if you feel a certain way, in other words, if you feel that you are in love or feel you love someone, then you do love someone. Although, as we know, many people claim they love some other person and, and it doesn't last, something very strange happens. So, to get at what I'm, to try to make more clear what I'm getting at here, uh, I'm going to compare the definitions for love with the definition for altruism. Uh, because the, sort of a standard English definition for altruism uh, gets more at the sense of love in uh, the great sacred literature of India, the philosophical yoga literature, the Bhagavatam, the Gita, and so on. So here's a definition of altruism. Uh, the belief in or practice of or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. Disinterested and selfless concern. In other words, the definition of love uh, 
leaves open the possibility of extraordinary selfishness. One can feel affection for another person, but one may feel affection precisely because one's purpose in life is to control or dominate that person, to possess that person. In fact, some, as we know, unfortunately, tragically, people sometimes feel such intense attachment to another person, such affection, that, that when that person does not reciprocate their affection, they kill the other person. Uh, crimes of passion are unfortunately common. So again, the definition of love, there is uh, there's no attempt in the dictionary at least to come to any higher or, or, or to acknowledge higher and lower states of affection, as for example you find in uh, Plato in his famous work, The Symposium. Or now, now to give another definition of love and to put all these things together and then to get to uh, our heroes, the Beatles. Uh, there is a statement in a great medieval work uh, in India written in, I guess, what you could call Sanskritic Bengali. Uh, in Bengali, a North Indian language, there is a very learned literary form of Bengali, uh, which is Sanskritic, Shadu Bhasha, they would call it in Bengali. And then there's what I think they call Cholta Bhasha, they're sort of the common vernacular. So the Chaitanya Charitamrita is written in a very learned Sanskritic Bengali, and it contains this statement. The author is Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami. Uh, the statement is Atmendri Priti Vancha Tare Bole Kam. Krishnendriya Priti Icha Dhare Premanam. This means uh, we call, let's say, the desire to please oneself, the desire to please one's own body, the desire to please one's own sense of power, to gratify oneself. Uh, is given the name Kama. And the desire to please Krishna or God, uh, the desire to please the senses or, or the desire to, to satisfy the Supreme Lord is called Prema. You may be aware that in ancient Greek there are two words There are two words, agape and eros. Uh, agape, you may have seen churches called, you know, agape church or whatever. Agape was a high, noble love, a selfless love, where one actually is attempting, uh, you could say, sort of a combination of, of deep, passionate love, but in an altruistic sense. One is cultivating selfless love. In many... Uh, mystic religious traditions, whether it's Jewish mysticism, Christian, Sufi, or yoga, and, and so on, or Buddhist, there is, uh, there is this tradition of cultivating a selfless love. The idea being that love is about giving and lust, or selfish desire is about taking, and as they say, you can't walk on both sides of the street at the same time or you can't go in, this, in different directions at the same time. So if we, if we consider that 
Well, Krishna in the Gita compares consciousness or knowledge, awareness to the sun, the sun, the S-U-N sun. He says, Aditya Vajnanam, knowledge which is like the sun. So there is a dawning. If you consider our experience, our daily experience, for those who are early risers who take Benjamin Franklin seriously, early to bed, early to rise, uh, th there's this beautiful dawning in the sky, this first glimpse of light. And even before we see the sun itself, uh, the light spreads and we, um, things start to become visible in very beautiful tones. And so in the same way, and, and so the extent to which there is light, there's not darkness. The extent to which there's darkness, there's not light. So every day this experience of dawning, or for example, the sun setting, dusk, twilight, uh, we have the experience in reverse. And so there is an exact, a perfectly precise proportion between darkness and light. More darkness, less light. More light, less darkness. So in the same way, uh, practically all great traditions, all great philosophical and spiritual traditions around the world have recognized the, these polar opposites, these two drives in tension, in conflict, the drive to give, to love, and the drive to take and exploit, the drive to serve others and the drive to be served by others, the drive to devote oneself and the drive to coerce or somehow get other people to worship you. And the Greeks, of course, gave two words to it. Agape was the more noble, the real love, and the selfish affection. In other words, one has affection for others because one sees them as desirable objects of exploitation. I mean, if you think about it, there is a kind of affection that we feel for even inanimate objects. After all, the Beach Boys, I'm from California, the Beach Boys uh, and Jan and Dean and many other bands wrote what you'd have to call love songs to automobiles. <laughs> And uh, pe people, people pay large sums of money for you know, the art objects, and, and, and they practically worship them. They keep them in, in extremely valuable, elaborate frames or boxes, carved, all kinds of things. So people do, and they become attached. They become attached to these things. It's almost like some people, when you come over, they want to you know, introduce you to their dog or their children or their spouse. Some people want to introduce you to all their, you know, their valuable collection of whatever. Or they may have affection for their home. Home sweet home. Be it ever so humble. There's no place like home. The reason I mention this is because if you study the psychology involved, when we develop affection for attachment to inanimate objects, we are attached to things to the extent that we are able to use them and enjoy them, exploit them, derive pleasure like for example, someone sees my expensive paintings on the wall, or someone sees my expensive car, or this or that, or you know, check, or you sort of let people know what neighborhood you live in, and so on. So we become attached to inanimate objects in the sense we want to exploit them. Now, unfortunately, <coughs> there is a process which uh, I guess the postmodern intellectual world calls objectification. 
Objectification is not a positive term. It doesn't refer to getting things right and being fair-minded. Objectification means that we, in our own minds, in our own minds, we transform a subject into an object. We transform a subject into an object. In other words, every person, every living being, every one of you, every one of you is the subject of your own life, the subject of your own consciousness. And yet, to the extent that I approach you with selfish desires, in my mind, not in reality, but in my mind, I transform you into an object of my consciousness. In other words, you exist to gratify me, to please me, to give me a good time, to serve me in some way, like bring my dinner. Where's that moron waiter? Or, or I mean, I mean, think of lust when someone sees another person as simply an object of sexual gratification. So the extent when we approach people with selfish desires, I mean, think of, you know, relationships between business people where <coughs> I may take you to lunch, I may do this or that, but all I want is your money. It's all about getting the checkbook out of your pocket, getting you to, you know, take your pen and write the right numbers on the check and give it to me. And so this objectification degrading people because you are not an object of my consciousness. I mean, you are, There's a, obviously, because I'm conscious of you, or you're conscious of me, we are, in fact, objects of each other's consciousness. However, if we are effectively, if we are accurately cognizing each other, then we understand that we are dealing with another subject, that you do not exist simply to gratify me, you exist to realize your own purposes and your own best interest. So um, getting back to the love thing, lust or selfish desire or whatever word you want to use, in Sanskrit is Kama, you may have heard of the Kama Sutras, sort of ancient Indian learned porn or whatever, but <laughs> so what again the the Greek word eros, the Sanskrit word kama, we could say lust. It's interesting because lustig in German means happy. So compare these with, for example, the English uh, the, the Greek word agape, the Sanskrit word prema. So the basic difference is that when you truly see someone as a, as a subject, and you fully acknowledge that, when we fully accept that, there's no sense in which I see you or want you to be an object of my pleasure, but in every sense, I am pursuing your happiness. In my relationship with you, in my dealings with you, I am pursuing your best interest and your happiness. That's love. That's love. And uh, I may have great affection for you because, for example, a man meets a, a, a woman who, to whom he's attracted and thinks, wow, what a collectible. <laughs> and of course, women have even been known to think the same thing about a man. So, meanwhile, back in Beetle Land, 
So all you need is love. Um, again, let's go back to the definition in a, a very standard English dictionary. An intense feeling of deep affection. As I pointed out, that doesn't tell us. That definition does not tell us whether it is a selfish attempt to exploit another person or a loving attempt to actually serve the best interest of that person selflessly, an altruistic affection. Next definition, a deep romantic or sexual attachment. Again, uh, insufficient information. So it's interesting because I actually looked at several definitions. I looked at several dictionaries. I could not find any dictionary, any standard English dictionary, which made any distinction between these two ideas, which more ancient languages, for which ancient languages did have different words. So now the word love, you can say, for example, I love mushrooms on my pizza. So the word basically has been stripped of any real meaning. And therefore, people do feel free to say I love you uh, when it, uh, their, their intention can be quite selfish and exploitative and temporary. But they have no hesitation in saying love because why not? Love means everything and love means nothing. Now, one other point I'd like to introduce here concerning love <laughs> is that um, our ability to love, in a sense, or, or the degree of love, true love we can achieve, uh, depends on two factors. And that is, number one, our own capacity to love. And number two, how lovable the other person is. Now, there are, of course, uh, great noble teachings all over the world which urge us to love everyone, no matter how obnoxious they are, no matter what that person has done to you or not done for you, somehow you should love them. And uh, I think Jane Austen got this one right, uh, among many things she got right. Where in her work, uh, Emma, I think Mr. Knightley says that, or, or one of the main characters says that um, we should have universal goodwill, but I'm mean, paraphrasing, but, but friendship is more limited. In other words, if, let's say, you meet someone who uh, clearly does not have your best interests in mind, a person who is not reliable, whom you cannot trust, uh, what does it mean to love that person? And you know, should we love that person? Why should we love that person? And what does it mean to love a person who, in a sense, is unworthy of your friendship? in the sense that they will not reciprocate, they will not do anything except perhaps mistreat or exploit or, or neglect you. So in that sense, what does it mean to love them and why? And, and, uh, here we get to a, uh, an inescapable fact of life, and that is there is something like a soul. In fact, uh, you can figure that much out by reading the Declaration of Independence the DOI. Uh, one of the great ironies, it's uh, who needs Monty Python when you have the modern world? <laughs> the, in the modern world, 
the default best form of government is, of course, secular democracy, which is, that's fine. But what's interesting is that democracy is based on religious assumption, which no one seems to notice. Uh, religious assumption is the basis of democracy. As, you, as, as Thomas Jefferson, who was no dummy when it came to philosophical matters, understood this. And therefore, he said that we hold these truths to be self-evident that, that we are created equal, created equal, <clears throat> endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. So uh, since, take the people in this room, we could give ourselves any conceivable test, like we could see, you know, athletic tests, artistic tests, mathematical tests, tests of emotional intelligence, uh, see who can cook better, who can, I mean, anything you like. And we'll find that everyone in this room is different. So what's very interesting is that although in general in our judicial system, one is supposed to bring to court as evidence uh, scientific and not religious claims, uh, our entire political system is based not on a scientific but on a religious claim, since there's absolutely not a shred of scientific evidence that we are equal. So, since we are not physically equal, guess what's left? Metaphysical. We are metaphysically equal. So what does it mean to be metaphysically equal? Because our equality is beyond the physical. And you can try to, you can try to give a, a humanistic account for this by saying it's about our equal dignity, but what does that mean? What is a dignity? I mean, what is the empirical basis for dignities? Like, what color is your dignity, and how much does my dignity weigh, and what's a dignity? So, um, again, we are not physically equal, uh, so we must be metaphysically equal, if we are equal at all. And so to say, what does it mean to say we're metaphysically equal? That means there's something about us which is not physical. And that non-physical something in or about us is equal in everyone. And so uh, I think we should not be squeamish here and just go ahead, we should go ahead and call it a soul. Actually, there is no great teacher really who denied this, even uh, Buddha, if you look at uh, Siddhartha Gautam, the Buddha, as I was explaining uh, earlier today, in the, in the, or yesterday, I mean, I'm traveling up somewhere. I was somewhere and I said this in, in, in the recent past. <laughs> that um, Buddhism, if you, look at, if you look at the early history of Buddhism, Buddhism when it first began in India with Siddhartha Gautam, who became the Buddha, and uh, how it developed in India for, for many centuries uh, before it, it went elsewhere. Uh, the second sermon of the Buddha, that means they just had their grand opening, you know? They just had, you know, Buddha just had his IPO, initial public offering, which was sermon one, and we're still kind of in the festive grand opening phase of Buddhism, and he gives sermon number two. Now, sermon number two of the Buddha, it has been known for thousands of years as the sermon on the non-existence of the soul. It's a very interesting sermon. The only little thing that Buddha leaves out of the sermon is he never says there's no soul. It's only two paragraphs. And what he does is he, he takes these standard coverings, uh, or you could say layers, 
They're, they were in the ancient Upanishads. This is not necessarily an original idea of Buddha, but it, it was an idea that was around in the culture. That, for example, we have our gross physical body, we have our material mind, we have our material, our mundane calculating intelligence, things which are not the, the core, the, the ultimate person, the ultimate soul. And so Buddha goes through these coverings and says, for example, is the physical body the eternal self? Nope. Is the material mind that's you know going this way and that way and can never quite decide on anything ultimate? Is that the eternal soul? Nope. And in this way, Buddha goes through all the coverings. The end. That's the end of the second sermon. And this was actually a, a problem, even an embarrassment, you might say, for many centuries, because. In, in sort of in the you know the Buddhist locker room, they were kind of talking to each other, <laughs> post game shows and everything. After going out and preaching, and 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 they would say like, um, why didn't he say there's no soul? Why didn't he just say it? And actually, people would approach Buddha and they would say, so Buddha, there's no soul, right? And he said, not going to talk about that. So he never he never denied. So there's actually no great teacher that denied something like a self or a soul. So again, if we could not be squeamish about that and just say there's something like a non-physical self or soul, which is absolutely in your interest, because if this is right, you may get to live forever. If it's wrong, you're gonna be roadkill very soon. And so, I, I think one of the most amazing uh, displays of illusion is, uh, let me t tell you one story. There's a story in the Bhagavatam, the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam, the great Srimad Bhagavatam, where uh, a, an asura, a demonic person, sort of like ancient, an ancient sociopath, <laughs> worshipped, worshipped Lord Shiva for a boon. This is a typical scenario. Worship Lord Shiva, finally Lord Shiva came and said, okay, what's on your wish list? And this very eccentric demon asked for the power to, he wanted the power so that he could touch anyone's head and make their head explode. You can see he's like a really a good guy. So he wants, he just wants the power to make, you know, shatter anyone's head just by touching it. And so as soon as he gets this power, uh, with, with incredible ingratitude, he goes after Lord Shiva. So I'm going to test it on you. So again, we are, this is definitely a sociopath. So he, he goes after Lord Shiva, and Lord Shiva starts running because he just, Shiva just gave him this power. And Shiva runs high and low, and then and finally Krishna shows up, you know, sort of like the ancient celestial equivalent, equivalent to the U.S. cavalry. So Krishna or Vishnu shows up, and Shiva ducks for cover, and Krishna actually came as a, like, as a young Brahmin, disguised young Brahmin, and said to this demon, whoa, wait a second, what are you doing? Anyway, the demon explained what he was doing. And so Krishna, disguised as a young Brahmin, began to laugh and said that, I can't believe you're so, so naive. Shiva didn't really give you that power. You actually believed him? <laughs> Everyone knows that, you know, he overpromises and underdelivers. <laughs> so the demon thought, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was you, I wouldn't take another step until I tested that power. Touch your own head and see what happens. <laughs> so the demon touched his head and the power was real. 
and and it was you know hasta la vista demon. <laughs> so uh, he was terminated. Now, what's interesting? I used to, when I used to read that story in my first youth. I'm now in my second youth, but in my first youth, I used to read that story and think it's it's a it's an interesting story, but no one would really do that. Of course, the story was that Vishnu, or Krishna, expanded his great illusory power, Maya, bewildered this demon, and, and made him do that. And I was thinking, of course, God can in induce anyone to do anything, I suppose. But, I mean, people don't really do things like that. But then I thought, wait a second. Consider modern scientism. Scientism as opposed to science. Scientism is the... Uh, is the view in which one makes exaggerated claims about sort of like the epistemological hegemony of science. In other words, science will explain everything and no one else can explain anything, which is uh, sort of a comical, from a philosophical point of view, somewhat comically contradictory, but not which I'll get into. But but consider, for example, the, the sort of some of these fanatical scientists who are materialists. They dedicate, there are people, like apparently very intelligent, they go to good schools and, uh, you know, have reasonably good vocabularies and all that, and, they, they, and, and they're writing books, they're dedicating their lives to proving that they will die. They dedicate their lives to demonstrating that we can explain everything about human behavior and human cognition uh, physiologically, neurologically, which of course we absolutely cannot. You can only explain everything if you sort of ignore most of what people actually experience. But in any case, imagine dedicating your life to proving that your existence will be annihilated. In the literal sense of annihilated, it'll come to nothing. So it's like that demon. They enthusiastically, with great determination, they think the mission of my life is to verify my own annihilation. Imagine, for example, a person falls into the ocean and is drowning. And let's say someone comes along in a boat and throws a lifeline. And the person happens to be a philosophical skeptic. And the person says, well, this may be a trick. What if that's like a Somali pirate or something? Who somehow ended up in the Caribbean. Or you'll never know to take the rule. I mean, you're already drowning as they say it nowadays, dude. You're already drowning. <coughs> you're already drowning, and you may be saved. But you say, no, I think I just won't take the rope. I'm a skeptic. I mean, who could call that intelligent? So in the same way, there's all these claims that we study the history of human civilization the overwhelming majority, almost, almost all people who have ever lived throughout time and space on this planet have come to believe there is some very important reality which is beyond uh, the physical surface of our perception. In other words, we have our surface consciousness. We see things. The overwhelming majority of all the people that have ever lived believed that there was something very important beyond the physical something metaphysical or divine which uh, was which was, and you had to understand that to really grasp where we are and what reality is now 
of course, human testimony is not, it's not, necess it's not a necessary proof. But imagine, for example, let's say you're hiking on a mountain and, and a person comes running past you saying, there's a grizzly bear coming. And another person comes running and says the same thing. Fifteen people come running and uh, saying, there's a grizzly bear coming. And you say, human testimony is not an ultimate proof of anything. <laughs> so you just keep going. After all, I, I mean, think, think even of the so-called hard sciences. Now, well, I mean, you could say, is archaeology a hard science? It depends. Because let's say an archaeologist <coughs> discovers an artifact in some stratigraphic layer, or not strat, no, no, stratigraphic, yeah. Actually, that's what it is. Yeah, some particular layer. Now, the, the problem is that once strata. the strata, once, once the, okay, I think we have a ballpark understanding now. <laughs> so once the archaeologist takes that object away, you can't go back and discover it again. It's not like, let's say, something done in the pharmaceutical industry, which is probably the most selflessly benevolent industry in this country. <laughs> Ignoring their own profits, they seek nothing but the physical well-being of all of us. But if you consider, for example, experiments that are done in the, in, in the realm of physics or, or, or chemistry and so on, you can replicate the experiment. You can replicate the experiment. In fact, you have to be able to replicate it, but you can't replicate archaeology, because you already took it out of the ground. And not only that, you have to believe someone's word. Yeah, I found it down there. Okay. Well, I guess we'll take your word for that. So in so many, I mean, when you're on an airplane and the pilot says, we're going to hit turbulence, fasten your seatbelt, I mean, you could say human testimony proves nothing as your head bounces against the luggage compartment. So the point is, if you want to live, or to quote that great movie line, come with me if you want to live, Terminator 1. Um, if we want, I'm in Southern California, you have to expect things like this. So if we, I mean, if any of us were actually in danger, we would try to escape, assuming we're not suicidal. Anyone who's not suicidal will do anything to save their life and the life of loved ones, or just the life of any person whose life you can save. And so here we are, we know that, you know, there, that not, there's nothing so sure as death and taxes. So we know we have to leave this body, we know we're going to die, why not take your best shot? <laughs> Grab the rope and see if it's just, you know, a trick, or maybe there's someone on the other end that's going to pull you on board. How could someone be so, almost like, I remember I used to read when I was a kid, I, was a kid, I used to read about uh, prehistoric mammals and whales, and it's kind of attracted to big things. And I remember I was astonished by, by, the, by the giant sloth, the giant sloth, who we'll, we'll bring out here as, as evidence. The giant sloth, and this, according to scientists, was so busy just trying to chew berries. It was an early vegetarian, probably vegan, actually. So the giant vegan sloth would be, would be eating berries and nuts and so on. And something like, you know, one of the bad guys, like a saber-toothed tiger, 
you know, running into a saber-toothed tiger could ruin your whole day if you were a giant sloth. So the saber-toothed tiger would come start chewing on the sloth, who was so slothful that the sloth would just keep eating as it was being eaten. And so again, when I read that, I thought, oh my god. I mean, how could, how could a mammal be that stupid? And yet, look at glorious humanity. As time is consuming us, it's like, hey, what's that? You know, what, 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 what's on TV tonight? I mean, we are consuming as we are being consumed. As we are being consumed, we are consuming. So there's something uh, amazingly bizarre about this world. Now, getting back to love, uh, it's interesting because we talk about selfless love, but another irony is that if we choose to cultivate real love, if we choose to cultivate real love, then uh, selfless love, selfless love, we realize ourselves. Because the self, according to this great uh, ancient literature, the eternal self is selfless in the sense of being purely loving without, without, without ex exploitative motives. So it's only in the act of living a selfless life that you actually capture or, or, or get a hold of your real self. It's interesting, there's a... Now, there are attempts to do this in impersonal schools. I, I'm discussing with a few old high school friends who are kind of like philosophers and scientists, and, and they're into this silent observer thing. The silent observer, where, where we're, because we know the more vain, proud, selfish I am, the more my consciousness gets, uh, is covered. And so in order to get clear, pristine, accurate, blissful consciousness, we try to suppress that ego that wants to control and exploit. And, and, and yet the via negativa, the via negativa, the, the negative way, which means that um, you just try to take away things, take away vanity, take away pride, take away this, take away that, and what's left is clear consciousness. It's very difficult because it's hard to get super excited all the time about removal services. Uh, just for example, in Buddhism, a, a problem which they faced and eventually overcame by bringing in lots of positive entities was that the ultimate goal of their practice, the ultimate goal of their tradition, was expressed by a grammatically negative word. I don't mean it's negative in the sense that it's evil. I mean grammatically negative, nirvana. Because the word near means without. So nirvana means vana-less. Vana meaning current or flow, the flow of material existence, of, of birth and death and so on, another rebirth and redeath. Or similarly, for example, in the great impersonal Vedanta of Shankar and others, uh, which had so much influence in, in East and West among intellectuals, uh, the goal was to find a truth which is nirakar, formless, which is, uh, and so on, or av avachaniya, ineffable, which can't be expressed by words. So this idea, it's beyond words, it has no form. It's, you keep taking things away. But meanwhile, back on the human ranch, 
there's this problem that never went away. So I remember those clowns, I don't know if they still have them, that kind of have weighted, a weighted bottom, you punch the clown, it goes down, pops up. So the, the clown, if you look at the history of all religions, especially religions like, let's say, that attempted to deny the self, deny a personal self, deny a personal God. If you look at their histories, the clown that won't go down, or won't stay down, is personalism. So that in the Buddhist world, in the world of impersonal Vedanta, for centuries you have these incredibly disciplined, powerful attempts to deny a self, deny a personal God. And, and, and this, this philosophizing and meditating is not being done by kind of like Americans who we, I, you know, who are sort of between shopping trips or movies or you know going to the restaurant. They kind of like let's get into meditation. No, this is this is being done by yogis, Buddhist yogis, uh, uh, Vedantic yogis, who give up everything, who are absolutely celibate, who uh, give up all material comfort, mortify their body with all kinds of austerities who have incredible powers of concentration, incredible powers. I mean, they never watched TV in their life, they never texted, never did anything. They just have these incredible powers of concentration. They, they spend their whole life in monasteries, philosophizing, logic splitting, meditating, and, and, and they push culturally all over South Asia and, and then all over the Far East. They keep pushing, 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 no self, anatma, no personal God. And what's the result of it? Nothing. The result of it is that in the case of Buddhism, uh, you get Mahayana Buddhism, which is 85% of living Buddhists, by the way. So they're you know, the big winners, gold medalists in the you know, competition for the hearts and minds of, of Buddhists around the world, because there are many forms of Buddhism, there are many forms. And the Mahayana, they bring back, it's not just Novana, Novana, you're suffering, so you know, stop suffering. They bring back Buddhist heaven, Buddhist paradise, the bodhisattva, the bodhisattvas who are compassionate, who are loving, who come back to save other, you know, like beep souls. And, and so personalism comes roaring back. If you look at Buddhism, if you look at the Buddhism that actually became a world religion, not the sort of intellectualized, one hand clapping, version that has been marketed to uh, sort of upscale Western people that don't like the religion they were born in. <laughs> if you look at the Buddhism that actually became a world religion, it's very much based on personal devotion. There are saviors, there are gods, goddesses, heavens, everything. If you look at the impersonal Vedanta, even Shankar, the greatest impersonal Vedantist, writes a book about Krishna saying, actually, I really love Krishna. <laughs> He outs himself. <laughs> so, uh, I don't want to go on too long, but just, just to wrap up here, um, love is real because you are real. It's not, that, it's, it's not the case that when you finally become enlightened, when you really get it, that you, you reject yourself as an illusion and you just merge into some type of sort of corporate consciousness impersonal corporate consciousness or radiance. Uh, that's not what the Vedas actually teach. As I say, suicide is not healthy. Suicide is not healthy. Whether it's physical suicide or mystic suicide 
or philosophical suicide, the greatest thing you can ever have is yourself. I mean, the fact that you exist, the fact that you are a unique, unlimited, free soul, cast that in if you want to be happy. Notice how we talk in America? That's the bottom line. Buy into it. <laughs> Why do other people in other parts of the world say we're very mercantile? <laughs> There's a Sanskrit word in the Gita, Atmavan. Atmavan. It's like Bhagavan. Means anyway. So Atmavan means one who possesses themselves. One who possesses himself. If we foolishly reject our own self. Of course, we may reject the, let's say, the corrupted version, like, no, I don't want to be selfish, I don't want to exploit other people, I don't want to suffer, etc. I don't want to be a hypocrite, I want to be enlightened, I want to be happy, I want to love and be loved. We may reject, let's say, sort of like an unworthy iteration of ourself. But don't reject yourself. If, if someone has a painful infection in their hand and they think, okay, my first choice would be to amputate my hand. Like, well, maybe the doctor can take the infection out of your hand. Nope, I want it off. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. In the same way, sure, this world's imperfect. Our, our, our uh, corrupted self is not really, you know, we're not blissful all the time. We're not enlightened all the time. But don't, don't try to amputate yourself. First of all, because we can't do it. You're, you won't go away, you're eternal. No matter how much you try to do impersonal meditation, you will pop back up. And so better you deal with yourself. Deal with yourself as an eternal person instead of trying to pretend you're not a person and then the person pops back up because that's who you really are. And so because we are real as persons, love is real because that's who we really are. We love. That is the eternal action of the pure soul. The soul loves. And when that, our consciousness becomes corrupted, instead of loving, we exploit. So the second thing I said also, you know, we, we, we can love according to how lovable someone is. The good news is there is someone who is infinitely lovable, infinitely beautiful. When someone is beautiful, it attracts our attention. Let's say someone walked into the room that was just like ridiculously good looking. I mean, this is like, this is crazy. <laughs> the fact is, you know, whether you're a Hare Krishna or whatever you are, you know, you would look at him like, oh, wow. Because it just catches our attention. And, and there, is, there is infinite beauty. There is infinite beauty. And you can love infinite beauty. You can love infinite intelligence. Infinite, there's an infinite personal consciousness. And uh, a Sanskrit word for it is Krishna. Uh, that's what it means. Krish. Krish means uh, to attract. God doesn't simply coerce or bludgeon us into submission by, you know, threatening the most cruel punishments ever conceived by sick minds. If you don't. Uh, God actually attracts us. So therefore, Krish means to attract. And na is an abbreviation of nun, the Sanskrit verb nun, from which you get words like ananda, which means bliss or pleasure. So Krishna means that, or the word Rama, Rama grammatically means the source of pleasure. God is the source of all pleasure, the source of all beauty. That's why every soul is beautiful, because the, your source is beautiful. That's why everyone loves. We love because we come from an infinitely loving source. 
So yoga means connect to that source. If you pull a leaf off a tree, if you pull a leaf off a tree, the leaf, di the leaf dies. The leaf lives. The leaf is green only as long as it maintains its yoga. That's what yoga means, link. Only so long as it is yukta, linked, connected in yoga with the tree. We are like leaves. When we disconnect ourselves from God, we lose our spiritual life. We are thrashing around in this material world. What was that cartoon? I think they had a New Yorker. Two ladies are talking and one of them says, ah, for so many years I've been looking for my, my perfect soulmate. Now I'll just settle for some guy who's not on a special diet. <laughs> anyway, it's a New Yorker cartoon. So we're kind of we're kind of thrashing about in this world. What we really have to do is just reconnect. Just yoga, bhakti yoga. Just, this is a very ancient term. Bhakti yoga means you reconnect to the source of your existence by love. Because the connection between you and God is not simply electrical or magnetic. I mean, the connection is love between consciousness and consciousness. Or another example, if a spark falls out of the fire, the spark goes out. Put the spark back in the fire, the spark becomes fire. Every soul is a spark of God. And when that spark falls out of the infinite fire, it's extinguished. That's why our perfect consciousness has gone out. That's why our unlimited happiness has gone out. That's why we're struggling in this world, trying to make it all work, and you know, sort of pushing the bubble here and there under the paper. But as soon as we reconnect, as soon as we reconnect, you ignite. Ign you, you reignite. By the way, ignite from the Sanskrit word Agni, of course. But anyway, as soon as we reconnect, that, that spirit, your spiritual life returns. You realize you're a perfect eternal soul uh, of, of unimaginable beauty and happiness and knowledge. It's just about reconnecting. And the connection is love. And therefore, it's explained in all the most important yoga literatures, whether it's Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, that the perfection of yoga is bhakti yoga, you reconnect to God by love. That's what it's all about. It's not just ancient, mystic, Cirque du Soleil, you know, where, where you, you know, try to do this or that. It's really about that love. Patanjali says, Samadhi Siddhi or Ishwara Pranidhana. Uh, samadhi is, is the last stage of Ashtanga Yoga. Anyway, what's called Ashtanga Yoga right now is... Anyway, Hare Krishna. So, but the original Ashtanga Yoga, which was actually something very different, um, the eighth stage, Ashta means eight. Ashta is just Sanskrit Ocha. Acht in German, you know, Ashta. So, and Anga means parts or limbs. So the eighth final stage of yoga is samadhi, complete trance. And Patanjali says, samadhi siddhi, the perfection of samadhi. That means the perfection of the perfection of yoga is Ishwara pranidhana. It comes from devoting yourself to the Lord. And the Bhagavad Gita, of course, goes way beyond that because uh, the yoga sutras really are not meant to be a philosophical work. The yoga sutras are just kind of like techniques and practical psychological tips uh, but the actual philosophy is in the Bhagavad Gita. So love, uh, real love, so all you need is love if we're talking about real love. And, and if we mean either uh, zero in squash or tennis, 
or simply trying to exploit people because you affectionately want to possess them. Uh, no, no cigar. Uh, that's not all you need. But real love, as Krishna explained in the Bhagavad Gita, if we really cultivate this pure love for God and for every other soul, for every other soul, we will in fact receive everything. We will receive everything. We'll get our true inheritance uh, because we have an inheritance from someone who is infinitely opulent and, and we can claim that inheritance our divinity, our own divinity, knowledge, happiness, everything, beauty, if we just reconnect. Bhakti Yoga. So, thank you very much. Uh, any, any question we can try to help you with? I want to know when you have time to watch the Terminator. Oh, when I tried to watch the Terminator. Uh, I lied. Oh, uh, I uh, well, I guess I guess I can't repress the contemporary historian in me. So. Yes. Sure. But what does that mean that I go out and do? Practically. You know, especially like, you know, when I'm at work, how do I do that? And I'll, you know, do my work and get things done and take time to think about other people and, hey, how was your day? I spend all my day talking and listening to people, then I wouldn't get my work done. But I, maybe that's not loving them. Maybe that's just wasting time. That's a great question. So I could use some help as to how to yeah, sure, do sure. that. Um, that, that. Thank you. That, that was really great question. Kind of hit the, you and the Koopy doll, Koopy doll, you know, you really hit the thing. So, um, practical. Okay, I'll just go through the day, a day in the life. Yeah. Since we're, yeah. you know, it's a Beatles theme. Um, okay, Eleanor Rigby joins the Hare Krishna movement. So, a day in the life. Um, for one thing, Benjamin Franklin was right, and we get up early. Uh, the early morning hours are called, in Sanskrit, Brahma Mahurta, the, the spiritual hour. The, uh, the world is serene. And obviously, in the pre-industrial world, people did get up early, literally, you know, the crack of dawn. And so, uh, it's not hard to get up early, it's hard to go to bed early. Because if you go to bed early, you will get up early. So, um, once the sun rises, the sun is really the source of energy on this planet. And once the sun comes up and starts to move up in the sky, of course now, today is practically the summer solstice. So once the sun is rising in the sky, uh, we become energy, energized to go out and do our work. And we actually have to go to work or go to school or whatever we do. And so therefore, those who are serious about, uh, let's say you have family or you have a job or you study or you've got things to do in the world and you can't just neglect them, then uh, getting up early is really the secret. 
because if you can somehow or other knock your, get yourself to bed early and get up early, we, we like to get up when we're on our game around 4 o'clock or if that uh, sounds traumatic, you know, 5 o'clock. This is funny thing. I remember every college class I ever took in my life that started at 8 o'clock in the morning, every teacher would come in and say the exact same thing on day one. <laughs> Sorry to get you guys up at this ungodly hour. I guess they heard it when they were students, and I was thinking, ungodly hour. But anyway, so, so get up early. Get up early if you can. Just somehow or other try to organize your life so you can get up early. And the materialistic people are all sleeping, so they won't bother you. And, um, and you, have the, you have the world to yourself. It's serene. It's beautiful. If you take the time to Okay, okay, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was just, okay, I got a little too poetic there. Okay, next point. Next point is um, your meditation. In this age, which is called Kali Yuga, nasty age, in which it's hard to control our mind. The mind is, you know, it's all over the place. And so the process recommended is chanting or meditate on the names of God. This is not a sectarian process. Doesn't matter what language, doesn't matter what tradition. It's just the name of God. So any sound you make, if you sincerely mean you're calling God, you get points for that. It's, it's, like, it's like if a child calls the mother or the father. I mean, the parents know. It's not like, I'm sorry, Johnny, you didn't pronounce my name properly. And I'm not coming. I don't care how much you're suffering. So. So we chant on beads because it's a way of counting. It, it, it's like, for example, if you, if you go out, if, you, if you're into fitness, you go to the gym or, or whatever, you, know, you get numbers like 10 of these, 15 of those. It's numerical. When you, I mean, anything we want to be good at, let's say, for example, you're taking music lessons. It's like, okay, play this three times. Do the scale 10 times, right hand and left hand. <laughs> Basically, I mean, if you're an athlete, anything that we are serious about, we practice and quantify. And so to think that spiritual life is just kind of like, let it all fly, no. You have to be disciplined. You get what you pay for. If we want to advance in consciousness, it's not just like, choose the red pill or the blue pill. Which was a great message, by the way. Uh, I, I guess I guess the matrix was financed by the American pharmaceutical. Great message for people of this country. So we chant japa. There's two kinds of chanting: meditating on God's name. One is called kirtan, which is like singing or dancing, playing musical instruments. Japa is your private quality time with God, or with Krishna. You do your own meditation, chanting, and. Uh, it works. The reason it works is because, according actually to every world religion, if you, if you study and dig, you'll find this in every major world religion, God is present in his name, or her name, or their name. God is, of course, we believe Radha Krishna, there's the masculine and the feminine together. So God is present in the name of God. So when you chant the name of God, like we chant Hare Krishna, because, because it doesn't merely mean the Almighty or the really mad at you, or, I mean, I mean, the name Krishna specifically means that God is infinitely beautiful, the source of all pleasure. So when you chant any name of God, including these, you are directly in, in God's presence. You are in a state of yoga. As soon as you say the name of God in any language, you are in a state of yoga. You are connected. 
Yes. Who do we have to ask if you have atheist people here? Uh, Runner-ups. Runner First of all, agnostic, agnostic means atheism is, is, is a philosophical non-starter. Because if someone, agnostic I, th I think is a much more, can be a more reasonable position. Because someone may just say, I don't know. That's what agnostic means. I, I don't know. If someone says, no, I know that there is no God, then just follow the simple little trail. If there is no God, then that means there's no omniscient being. If there's no omniscient being, nobody knows everything. If nobody knows everything, nobody knows that there's a God <laughs> or not. So claiming there is no God means like you're just not paying attention. <laughs> so it's like never say never. I mean, atheism, atheism, I think, is not a serious philosophical position. So agnosticism, of course, someone can be honest and have integrity to say, I don't know. That gets back to the other point. If you don't know, and if it is in every conceivable way, in every conceivable way, in your interest, that there be a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, all good, then go look and see. Because if there is a God who actually loves us, who's not, who doesn't need a series of 12-step programs for anger management and jealousy and, and you know, you know uh, prone to violence and so on and so forth, if, if there's a God who is actually the kind of God we'd want there to be, infinitely beautiful, then try. Because if there's no God, then your life ultimately means nothing and you're gonna be out of here very soon. So your only chance to achieve everything you really desire in the core of your heart is to find something like a God. So go look. And if you are very sincere, you will you know, seek and you will find. Otherwise, it, 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 to not Look for God is like, it's like being trapped in a mountain. We, there may be a way out of this, but I'm not going to look. I think I'll just embrace non-existence. It's like, what are you doing? Now, some people show this bravado. Some people say, I'm not afraid of dying. I don't care if there's a soul or not. The point is, with, here, they also don't understand some simple logic. And that is, you cannot, how should I put it? Logically speaking, uh, if you don't care about the loss of something, it means you put no positive value on it. You cannot put positive value on something and place no negative value on the loss of it. For example, if you value a child, if you value the money you have in the bank, if you value your car, the extent to which you place positive value on that, to that extent, there is a negative value in losing it. And so someone that says, I don't care I don't care if I die, that means they have they place no positive value on life, and I feel very sorry for them. I feel very sorry for someone who has lived in this world and found nothing, nothing worth living for. Because it's only the person who has absolutely nothing worth living for that can say, I don't care about dying. So basically it's a bluff. It's sort of like it's showing off, I don't care about and of course, the, you know, the people that say that, you know, 99% of the time when they actually face death, they say, oh my God. <laughs>
In fact, who is it that guy, that guy, that, that guy, what's his name, Dawkins, who wrote the atheist book? You heard of him, Richard Dawkins? Yeah. No. Anyway, he, he broke the first rule of scholarship, by the way, and that is don't make claims, don't try to talk big outside your field of expertise. He has no academic training in philosophy, history of religions, theology, and it shows. But even he, even he, this very celebrated atheist, the probably most famous atheist in the world, I read an interview where someone says something to me and said, oh my God. So anyway, <laughs> so, so we get up in the morning, going on with the day. We get up in the morning, we chant, and we connect. You are directly in touch with the absolute truth. And that purifies you. You establish your personal relationship. And then, uh, let's say, now, if, you, if there are other people you live with or near you, you may want to do kirtan, like sing, and just you know, let your heart, let your soul dance. Then you have to eat. So uh, before we eat, we should make an offering. If you study ancient literature, whether it's Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey or, or, the, or the Vedic Sanskrit literature, civilized people don't eat unless they offer their food. It's like, let's say you go to a, super, a supermarket or Whole Foods, wherever you shop, and you take some food and, and eat it and walk out. Penalty flags, you have, you have to pay for it. You have to pay for it. So to think that in this universe, to think that, that this whole universe with, with its infinitely fantastic construction and engineering that it just happens to rain food just happens to grow and you can just I, I can just stuff my face and, and walk on no you're cold yeah I'm dancing right oh. yes yeah, we have a blanket or something yeah turn the fan on So we have to offer our food. And, th and then your food becomes spiritualized by offering, which is, which is a custom found in all ancient civilizations. Your food becomes spiritualized. So when you eat, you're actually creating a spiritual body. When you do an offering, you mean you say, Here, God, you have my food? Yeah, and it won't vanish. It's, yeah, I mean, I mean we, we have like a little altar. It can be, it can be a little counter in your house. It can be, you can make a little separate little altar. And Doris can show you how to do it. You cook the food, when you cook it, when we cook food, we don't like, you know, lick it or try to enjoy it or, well, it smells good. Mm. Because we're actually preparing the food with the consciousness that, I, that I'm, I'm, this is a loving service. There's a loving service for Krishna, for God. And so then you take the food, you offer it, you can bow down if you like. Uh, by the way, in the Old Testament, everybody bows down. So it's not just some Eastern, you know, worship of mortals or something. So you, so, so you bow down to God or just offer your prayers in your own way or there are standard prayers you can offer. And, and, then, you, and then you accept the food as, as spiritual food. Because after all, your ability to meditate, your ability to be spiritual, your ability to, let's say, undergo troubles in life or provocations and rise above it and keep your consciousness high, it, it's very much affected by the body you're in. Just as we're affected by an environment, if we're in an environment where everybody's screaming and angry, I mean, you know, it, it gets to you. The environment gets to us, but the first environment that every one of us lives in is our own body. And so if we are eating garbage, basically, if, if we are eating food that was obtained by cruelty, then you are creating a cruel body. 
And you will be cruel to yourself by not giving yourself enlightenment. You will be cruel to other people by trying to enjoy them sexually or financially or whatever it may be, rather than trying to serve them and bring them to enlightenment. So whatever we eat becomes our, our body and mind. So we have to eat spiritual food. Then, as you said, we have to work. Now, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, in a very famous verse in like, chapter 9, Jat Kurushi, Jarashnasi, Jat Juhoshi, Dadasiyat, all the SIs, Juhoshi, Dadasi, Kurushi are the second person singular. Whatever you eat, Jat Kurushi, whatever you do, Jarashnasi, whatever you eat, Jat Juhoshi, whatever you offer in sacrifice, Dadasi, whatever you give in charity, Jat Tapasyasi, Konte, whatever austerity you perform, whatever trouble you take in the world, Tat Kurushavanarbha, make that an offering to me. So you offer your life to God. So you go to work, but if you're home, because let's say you go to work and a lot of you work get money because you got to pay for the place you live in, you got to buy your food, and so on. But if you make your home a spiritual ashram, if you if you offer your food, then at work you can meditate that I'm actually working for God, for Krishna. This is called karma yoga, by the way. Karma means the work you do. Yoga means you through that work you connect to God. That, that's karma yoga. So you work, and then you, and then you, you and, and then you, you cultivate compassion by trying to help other people to understand the spiritual life, and so on. So, yeah, there's all these practical things that you can do. Of course, we could talk more in detail. There are all kinds of details, but but that's the basic life, where your whole life becomes an offering. Krishna explains, by the way, in chapter four of the Bhagavad Gita, Brahmarpanam, Brahmahavir. When you make an offering to the Absolute the offering itself becomes absolute. The offering becomes spiritual. It's like you put iron in fire, the iron becomes fire. So when you offer yourself to God, yourself, when you put yourself in that spiritual fire of the absolute, Brahman, your whole existence becomes spiritualized. And the way you offer your whole self is by whatever you do is an offering, whatever you eat has been offered, when you talk, for example, the way we dress. Why should I, in, in this mortal world where everybody is on the way out, why should I dress or, or present myself in a way to distract people from their own soul, eternal soul, distract people from God, and try to focus their attention on my dying body? It's actually an act of cruel exploitation. In other words, instead of trying to arouse in other people uh, erotic desire so I can get my hands on them, we should try to arouse in other people love of, of Krishna, love of God, so they can actually achieve the, their perfection. So it, it's, it's a question of everyone you meet, try to serve them with love instead of trying to exploit them. And in that consciousness, even your co-workers, you can, you know, they're just, they're simply like meditation props. In the sense, you know, when you do yoga, they have the blocks and straps and all this stuff. So, you're, I mean, because Krishna is in everyone's heart. God is, the absolute is in everyone's heart. And so at work, you can just use them. I mean, not that we're using them, but, you know, try to meditate on them as souls. Practice trying to see them as spiritual beings. Try to see that Krishna is in their hearts. And try to treat them as souls. So at every moment, we can be engaged in bhakti yoga. How do you treat someone as a soul? Not talk about, like, the weather, but, you know. Well, I mean, sometimes you talk about the weather, but that's a good question. How do you treat someone as a soul? By, um, one thing, being kind to them. And 
to the extent that it may be possible, try to guide conversations toward topics which are edifying and not degrading or just wasting time as far as possible. You, know, you can't preach too much in an office setting or at work, but just, yeah, just try, try to set an example by your, your own example as a spiritual person will rub off on them. And, and by seeing them as souls, you will not ever try to exploit them. And that will keep you pure because it will, it will say, you will be saving yourself from exploitative, degrading desires. Hare Krishna. Yes. Um, I, I agree with um, most of what you have been taught tonight. Uh, now I have my own personal experience, and that is that I found myself that when I retreat from the company of other people, I found myself more at peace. Because when I'm in the company of other people, I have to deal with different vibrations. And the vibration that comes to me sometimes is not a very clear vibration, it's very confusing. Um, and I get a lot of wanting to control me, wanting to lower with my life. There's always an excuse that I, that I get from, from people who follow religion, and that is that um, this, that is the human tendency of not wanting to uh, cater or giving into authority. Yeah, I recognize uh, the not wanting to uh, not wanting to recognize authority. Oh, sorry. Authority. Authority. Yeah, authority, I understand. All right. So my thing about religion is that since I was a little boy, I seek religion. And the minute that I decide not to follow religion anymore, then I started to be more happy. Then I started to really get in touch with, with love energy. Unlike when I've been around people who call themselves religion, I, I feel the vibration that is not really and totally genuine. It's not really and totally unconditional love. It's more like, I wonder if you're doing what you're supposed to do, what I believe. And if you're not doing it, then you're not doing what is right. So I'm a firm believer in love. I'm embodiment, I'm the embodiment of love. And my, as a matter of fact, my name is Michael, which uh, means ones who is like God. Not that I'm, I'm in no way, shape, or form I can be like the Lord, because I understand that I'm part and parcel of the Lord. But I get in contact with that, with that love many times, and I have people who are members of religion who downplay that love. I have people even judging me to say, oh, no, 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 that's not how that is. It's like one, one morning, I remember I was living right here in the temple, and I got up, and as I was chanting, I read the words of uh, Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And at the moment when I was reading those words, tears came flowing down my eyes, because I could really, uh, at that moment, it was like a, such, a, such a sublime moment, sublime moment that, I, that, that I felt that I was there. I felt like I, wanted, I, I was longing to go back home, to go back to the Godhead. But then when I explained another devotee about what I, what I felt at that moment, he said, oh, no, no, you're not, you're not spiritually mature enough. You don't, you don't understand that. So by downplaying my, my spirituality and what I experienced that moment that it was for me the highest moment of spirituality, that was a total turn off. Okay. And so... I understand. And, and so all those... 
Okay, so my question to you is, where do the where do the where is the place where 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 love and religion actually do not go to the same place? Okay. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, first of all, uh, the the ancient texts themselves, like Bhagavatam, describe that people are at different levels in spiritual development. I don't think that someone who is spiritually mature would uh, reject your spiritual experience of crying. I mean, when you just told it to me, it doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds authentic to me. As far as sometimes wanting to be alone, you find yourself more at peace and love. I mean, we all have different natures. Everyone is different. And we all have our own way of, of getting into our practice. Um, to me, I don't really have the sensation that I have a religious life or anything like that. I, I just think that I'm on a spiritual path. And uh, I also see that, um, I also see that out of compassion, if I really want to help a lot of people, somehow or other I and, and, and many other people who, who care about people, we have to organize. It's like, for example, imagine there was an epidemic, or we have, we've actually gone beyond epidemics, we have pandemics now. And, and let's say somehow a, a cure was discovered. And so we say, okay, we got to really organize and, and, and get this out to people. And someone says, well, I don't believe in organized healthcare. And so just kind of everyone sort of distributed according to how you feel. It's actually even Bhakti Siddhanta, Prabhupada's guru once said that organized religion is a necessary evil. And so, when you're in a temple or, or church or mosque or synagogue, I mean, you're going to find people who are genuinely spiritually advanced and people who are neophytes and sometimes say dumb things. And so if at a particular point in my or your development, we are, for, for whatever reason, very sensitive and, and, and it affects us, then you may have to strictly choose or limit your association to be with people who help and don't harm your spiritual life. Ultimately, for all of us, so I think the goal should be to become strong enough by our spiritual practice so that even though there's a lot of silliness out there in the world from religious or non-religious people, we're strong enough so we can go out and for the sake of trying to help people, we can work with others, we can work as a team because that's what the world needs us to work together, to organize and try to get this knowledge out. The world needs that. But of course, we have to do that According to, we have to re respect our own needs, and if at a particular time or place in your life you need to step back, then step back. I mean, I've done that myself many times in my life. There are times in my life when uh, it didn't work for me to be in, a, let's say, a religious community. I still kept my principles. I still did my practice, and but I, I just wanted a little more solitude. So it's, it's not at every moment you just do whatever's practical to to advance in your Krishna consciousness. Yes. What what of a religion of the physical, wherein if all if, if what is equal about us is that we are all equally special and perhaps unique individuals, why not pray to the group or pray to the other or 
worship the other human or, 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 or the group of humans who you're encountering either as a specific defined group or as those you come across in your life. I don't because... And then yeah. all the meditation thing becomes meditating on your, your, within your interactions. Well, simply because I'd be betting on the wrong horse. As much as I love people, and I, you know, I love to be around, you know, we're all souls, uh, I'm not sure that my neighbors can actually uh, give me eternal life when they themselves are mortal. What, what, what and, 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 eternal life yes. is indeed the emanations of your effects while being individual. Uh, I think I'd rather live forever and not just content myself with the knowledge <clears throat> that my effects will last for and well, first of all, if you study history, no one, no one who has seriously studied history would delude themselves into thinking they're going to have eternal effects in this world. You, you, by definition, every little branch that. But again, the more, but again, the more we value being alive and conscious, the more we do not want to give that up. So a philosophy which which says that there's no significant loss in you personally not living, that means there's no significant value in you living. And so to know that I breathe and, and, and you know the carbon dioxide is going here and there and combining and feeding trees or whatever, that's nice. You know, it's 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 a beautiful, amazing thing. But personally, I place unlimited value on personal on existing. I think because my existence is so wonderful and so full of almost unspeakable happiness. And I see so much beauty in the world that I place the highest value on my own survival and the survival of every other soul. And just sort of like the concept that, well, I'm, you know, I, I help trees and the trees are going to be alive when I die. Uh, again, it's poetic, but it, it, it doesn't get at the heart of the matter, which is that I value my existence and I value your existence and, and we, should, we should keep them going forever. So you're not acknowledging history insofar as every individual plays a role which results in some change in society, which again, reverberates forever, and from the society. Uh, well, it stops reverberating when the, when, 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 when the planet is over, that kind of, but that, I mean, to know that I'm having some effect on a dead object, maybe like, like you know, some dust that goes out in the universe, that's just not the same thing as being alive. You see, you're missing a crucial distinction here between conscious and unconscious, between living and dead. And to say that there's no significant, because a lot of the effects and reverberations I have are among unconscious dead objects. And therefore, uh, to say that there's no advantage in being conscious over unconscious, there's no advantage in being living or as opposed to not existing, uh, I think it's just, uh, it's not real. That's not what I said. Well, it is, because I'm supposed to take, I'm supposed to take solace in the fact that I'm reverberating in a universe which is, you know, 99.9 percent .9 dead matter. So, and, and as far as and, and as far as my reverberations, if my reverberations fail to preserve the life of any other soul, then ultimately that which is most valuable, life, I, you know, all my, you know, all the king's reverberations and all the king's men are not going to save a single soul and keep that person alive and conscious. So again, if you see no loss, if you see no significant loss in your extinction, in your annihilation, if there's no serious loss, then there's no serious value in your existing. What of martyrdom? Uh, 
but but you're calling upon yourself. But it's not martyrdom because you're not saving anybody else. And, and so in a sense, and so the con, you know, no, the, con, the contradiction, the logical contradiction, just to cut right to it, the logical contradiction is that you're assigning value to helping others, and yet you assign no value to your own preservation. So either souls have value or don't. If souls have value, you do also, I do also, everyone here has value, and therefore preserving that value is a positive thing, and we should do it by all means. And another thing is, for personally, I can't stand the vanity of anthropocentrism. I find humanism to be disgusting. Not you. The concept of humanism I find disgusting. The, 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 the absurd vanity, the absurd vanity of thinking that human beings are the center of everything. I didn't say that. Well, you, you said, why can't we just be with each other? Uh, well, I, I, I didn't limit it to the humans. Fine, other things. But other things, as far as we know, things like trees and animals are not fully conscious, as far as we know. And therefore, why not seek the enlightenment of every living being? Why not seek the enlightenment of the trees and the birds and their divine reunion with God? Why avoid that? Why reject it when you don't even know that it's not there? That's a great point. I mean, uh, what the man mentioned over there is, why is there not a million people in this room? And what you feel is you feel the compassion inside yourself for them that they can't feel at that time for themselves. And one of the great teachings is much of what he's alluded on here, and I hate to do the little cantation, but we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Yes, yes. Now what you run into, and what we're reiterating here, and you've tried to make a great point, and thank you for doing that, we appreciate it. But what happens is, is when you run into opposition, what that is, is that's the other spiritual part, the greater spiritual part of yourself teaching you something. And what uh, our person here is speaking to us about is that if you can't embrace the worst of society, the worst of religion, the worst of the creation, how can you ever embrace the greatest part of yourself? And try and put it in common sense. That's very well said. It's, uh, that, that's what's missing. Uh, and we're more compassionate for them, and I don't understand the math either of how we're a small portion and they're a greater portion, other than thanks for the lessons. No, but thank you. That's very well said. Yes. So, um, I, going back to your point on eternal life, mm -hmm. I suppose when I think of eternal life, I you know, imagine myself living a thousand years or a hundred thousand years or a million years, and I think of the things that you know I, I could do during that period and. You know, it's almost like you can compare. Do you, do you remember the first week you were born or first month you were born? And it's like that same period in which we exist now would be relative to the, the amount if we were to live eternally. Um, and it seems like that, considering that, you know, I don't even know who I was at one month and I don't even know who I was at one week. And the fact that my identity. <coughs> Um, will be fundamentally different. Um, it doesn't seem to matter to me whether or not then I live forever. In, in fact, it seems that uh, the idea becomes uh, almost dull and boring of eternal life. Okay, okay. And, well, and real quickly, uh, the, and it almost seems then the, the idea of death, um, while I don't feel like of by um, embracing death you negate the positive of life um, because 
by simply accepting that, not saying that it's a good thing, but rather than understanding that there is an end, um, brings a completeness to life that you can't have if it was eternal. Okay, um, interesting points. First of all, uh, I think basically what you're saying is if you live forever, that's just like this insufferable, endless Groundhog Day movie. <laughs> You know that movie Groundhog Day? No, I haven't watched it. Oh. No, so it's, anyway, it's it, 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 it's a movie where um, it's a movie where this guy, anyway, this weatherman in some little town in Pennsylvania, goes to do a show on Groundhog Day, and then every every he goes to sleep and every morning he wakes up and it's the same day. He's like trapped in the same day, and he, and he finally he actually well not finally but he tries to kill himself because he can't stand the like always repeating. So, I think, I think what your um, concern overlooks, or didn't overlook because I didn't say it, but, but I think what, what responds to your concern, put it that way, is that when you realize yourself as an eternal soul, at the same time you realize an eternal world, which has infinite possibilities and infinite pleasures and so uh, in this world it's true I mean it's actually true what you said that in this world if you live here long enough like I've seen this movie so many times and you get to the point where there's really nothing new under the sun what, what do they say in Ecclesiastes and in, in the Bible that vanity vanity all is vanity and so yes so if we mistakenly think that the spiritual realm is simply a perpetual version of this limited world, then your concern would be valid, but it's not. And uh, it, it is actually an inconceivably deep, it's an, it's an infinite pleasure that we're, that's increasing. And it, it, it's not simply a senseless, a mindless pleasure like, like people take Soma and Brave New Worlds. You know, it's like Brave New World, we just like, you know, every, every year they come up with this new incredible pharmaceutical and you get a new, you know, so you just sort of stay in your little padded cell and, and take the latest drug. It's not that. It's that, it, it's that because, the, I alluded to this, but maybe I'll bring it back to this point, that because there is an, an infinitely attractive being, whom you can call God, therefore your discovery, the sense of finding new things, not just like new, let's say you're looking for exotic fish and you've found so many fish and so, okay, one more slightly different species, maybe the fin goes this way instead of that way, but you've seen so many fish. It's not just a little tweak on, on a you know, variation on the same theme, but actually just infinite, uh, infinite depth, infinite knowledge, infinite pleasure pleasure based on deeper and deeper understanding. So as far as the thing of saying, I mean, because, I mean, consider this. Take boredom or tedium as a negative. I mean, obviously, if you feel like really bored, like painfully bored, that's a negative. And so when you say death is almost like a welcome relief, what that means is that something is happening in your life which is so negative that it actually is like you do the math and figure out we got a minus number here. Because maybe the life I have, let's say just to, I mean, just to throw out, is, is a positive seven, but my boredom, my tedium it has become a negative nine. And therefore, 
you know, I, 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 there's more negative than positive. However, as far as the completeness, no, it's not complete. I, I, I would say that to, to call death completeness is actually, it's exactly the opposite. Because, for example, in my mind and in my heart, I can imagine at least the idea of a perfectly beautiful world. A, perfect, a world of unimaginable, well, I, don't, I can't imagine unimaginable beauty, but, but, but I, I can imagine just beauty far beyond anything I've ever seen. I can imagine a world in which everyone loves purely. I can imagine a world, I mean, all kinds of great things. And I've never lived in that world. And so how's my, how's my life complete when my greatest dreams, my, the, the greatest inspiration of which I'm capable, has been completely thwarted? Who could call that complete? Well, I mean, obviously you've seen a lot of movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you, there are some movies that you like more than others. But if you only saw the perfect movie, right, then does that perfect movie still, is it still perfect if you have nothing to compare it to? And the same thing with, so the world, the, the fact that I have infinite happiness, that doesn't even really mean anything, I feel, because the only reason we're aware of happiness is because of we've, the fact that we've suffered. Uh, that's begging the question. First of all, uh, I mean, it's begging the question, but it's also true in a sense. I'll explain what I mean. It's, it's true in this sense. I'll start with, I'll, I'll be a nice guy in the beginning. It's true in this sense, that clearly one who has suffered, often a person who has suffered appreciates more his happiness. Let's say you had something, like, like let's say you had a friend or a relationship, and you didn't appreciate it, you didn't value it, and you lost that relationship. And then afterwards you, you realize that that was really a good relationship. I didn't appreciate that person. And then somehow you get a second chance. When you get the second chance, you're really, I mean, of course, gotta say it. The best example of this I know, of course, is Jane Austen's Persuasion. Uh, you know, uh, Sir Ann, uh, Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth. Anyway, I'm, so, apart from Jane Austen, uh, it's a great story. But so often when you suffer, then you can really appreciate something. Then, then you, you value much more the happiness. That's true. At the same time, uh, absolute happiness, spiritual happiness, is not always dependent on mundane suffering. In other words, imagine a world where people are enlightened. Imagine a world where people are enlightened and, and they're grateful and, and they're happy, they're pure souls, and uh, it's not the kind of, let, let's say someone's born rich and they've always had wealth, they don't appreciate it, they've always been healthy and don't appreciate it until they get sick. But in those cases, people who say some person who's always been healthy or always had money or this or that and doesn't appreciate it, it's because there's a certain ignorance. But, for example, I didn't have to... See, you see, if, if I take your argument, which is certainly true in many cases, I know in my own life, I mean, I have to say that I've learned a lot from my suffering. So I'm not rejecting what you're saying. But at the same time, my learning has been a combination of actually doing stupid things and suffering and learning from them. But in many cases, I just observed. I didn't have to become a, a heroin addict. I just looked at that and I thought, whoa, I'm not going there. <laughs> and there's a lot of things I've looked at in my life and thought, whoa, I'm not going there. 
And, so, and, and I really got, I really saw, like, don't go there. So I think in any normal life, we learn a lot by suffering, but we also learn a lot just by observing. And so imagine a person who's just so wise that they can learn practically everything by observing. They really get it, they really see. They're not, let's say, self-complacent, they're not apathetic, I mean, they, they really, they're a great person who's grateful and, and humble and, and really sees what's out there and learns. Oop, good, not good. So I, I wouldn't say, although suffering often teaches us, in, in fact, they say in Spanish, no hay mal que por bien no venga, there's no evil, it doesn't come for some good. And yet we also learn without suffering just by observing. It yes. sounds like he's discounting reincarnation and the fact that the soul learns, accumulates knowledge, and then in the next birth goes to a higher plane. I mean, have you considered reincarnation? Well, I mean, if you consider reincarnation, then, then his uh, argument about the fact that our internal life is not of this world then becomes a valid, wouldn't it? Because then reincarnation would place you back into this world. It's clever. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, no, he's good. He's got a good, good head on his shoulders. No, the, the, the fact is that um, we are eternal. And you can't stop being eternal. You are eternal. But when we are sort of trapped down here in the material world, or we trap ourselves down in the material world, then our eternal existence gets broken up into these little birth and death segments, like these little life segments. And, and so even though, now, you, of course, are always eternal. I mean, that sounds a little tautological, doesn't it? You're always eternal. <laughs> like some people aren't, are eternal, but not always. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So let's say that you're eternal, but in order to enjoy your eternality, in order to really experience your real eternal self, you have to be you have to be a pure soul. And if someone is not a pure soul, then what happens is be, precisely because I want to exploit the, the material world, because I'm attached to it. Therefore, I try to grab, I try to possess pleasurable things, avoid things I don't like, and and by doing that, I identify with my body because it's it's the body. The body is a virtual reality machine. So it's through the body that I have the sensation that I'm in this world, that I'm enjoying or suffering things. And so by attachment to the body, even though we are eternal, we falsely, in, in, in an illusory way, we experience ourselves as, as mortal, even though we're actually not mortal. I happened with a chance, uh, almost four years ago, I was uh, killed, almost killed in a car accident. Oh my God. So uh, I was doing exceptional spiritual work before that point, studying several different languages, just a lot. And then all of a sudden, you know, a kid not paying attention runs a red light, and bam! But it took me 18 months to realize that I couldn't feel, I couldn't sense things, and I didn't know it. So what happens is you can imagine that if your spiritual essence which he's trying to grasp here. You have a spiritual essence, which is immortal, that is with you, and it surpasses your material body or your material vehicle. So what happens was my material vehicle or essence was extremely damaged. So what happens is you can imagine the immortal part or of us doesn't want to function at a level below before the accident. 
So what happens is, is you can imagine how many times in four years when my material body was wanting to die. And the spiritual part's like, oh, wait a minute, we'd have to start over. It took 48 years for you to get to before the accident being the very exceptional spiritual material vehicle that you were. I don't want to start over. So for four years now, there's been this battle going on. And on one side of it, to kind of help you give a personal experience to what you're looking for, is on the one side, you have that essence of you that is greater than your material. But what happens is they battle back and forth, and the heroin addicts and the people of that, um, you can do it through observance, or some people, their vehicles are so damaged that they seek that death to where they can travel to the next vehicle that will be physically better prepared for that essence to, uh, it's still hard for me to think because I got hurt, um, it's that spiritual essence to uh, progress. So that's kind of giving you a personal testimony of what he's giving you a, a very in-depth statement on, if that helps you. I, I think she tried to. But that battle does go on like if someone wants to commit suicide. You have to see that there's two essence there. And one of them wants to go and maybe get another vehicle, like a brand new car, to, to not have to struggle so much. And that may help you. Sorry. OK, yes. Also, they are, but but it's like, for example, it was like this, let's say let's say a jewel, a diamond. Let's say a diamond falls in the mud. It's still the diamond. The diamond's not changed, but it's covered by mud. Because, yeah. Right. Absolutely. At the same time, when people do bad things to other people, they're not acting purely. Well, I think some people are not in touch with their souls. Exactly. That's exactly the point. So, and, and, and so what, what, what's breaking the connection so they're not in touch is precisely those, those selfish desires. And so by, by, when I say purified, for example, there's a difference between, let, let me take the, Take the diamond that fell in the mud. You wash it off, the diamond's still there. The diamond was always there, but it, but it was covered by mud. And so that's the word Krishna uses in the Gita, Abhritam, covered. It's not that we've been transformed into something else which is bad. We're covered. As we have to wash off that covering. So like we were discussing, you know, the daily practice. When we do our, our practice, we're washing off, washing off that, that impurity. And when you wash it off, then, then we find ourselves. And it's not just a negative thing of just removing something because one of the main ways that we wash it off is we actively start to act like souls. What do souls do? They love, they serve. So even if I don't feel all the emotions of love toward everyone, I can do the service. I can, I can act as if I love. But if something is natural, if something is really you, for, for example, uh, to give an example again for the medical field, let's say someone is, uh, is, is a musician and then they suffer some accident and, and so they have to do therapy and they've got to get back. But because you had it once, it, let's say it comes back. Or, or to give maybe a less gruesome example, let's say you're a musician and you just stop playing for a long time. You just neglect it. You ignore it even though you've got this talent. And, and then when you take it up again, even years later, it's just, it's there. So you are a pure loving soul. 
So when you start to act like it, even if your mind is still a little kooky, if you start to act like a pure soul by, by practicing spiritual life, by engaging in serious disciplined spiritual practice, by trying to help other people in their spiritual life, then because that is you, you awaken and you realize, yeah, this, this is really me. This is who I really am. And, and, and then it, and you become strong in your spiritual life. And, and, so, and so again, we have to become purified but that means washing off negative things. But I'll, for example, if I eat spiritual food, I'm not going to eat food I shouldn't eat. Uh, is that Avon? If I, if I, let's say, I like to sing. If I sing spiritual songs, I'm not going to just sing songs that, you know, take me away from my, from my go the goal of my life. And, and we have to work. So if, if uh, let's say you have to live somewhere, so make your house or your apartment or your room or just wherever you live, make it an ashram, make, make it a spiritual place by the pictures you put on the wall, by the things you do, by the, you know, make it a spiritual place. And that way, by eating spiritual food, your body is being spiritualized, by live, making your environment spiritual, so you're just like immersing yourself in spirituality, then you have your practice and, and you start to serve and the real service now, of course, the best service is to, as Krishna says in the Gita, is to help other people understand. To help other people understand. I personally, for example, I, I, I can't accept that the bad guys run this planet. And, and there's so much collateral and even intentional damage. And then we just got to go behind them mopping up after them by, you know, by welfare program. I mean, of course we should help people. Of course. What I'm saying is I, I want to really, I, I want the good guys to run the planet instead of just, you know, my concept of, of, of charity or welfare or doing good is not just to mop up after the bad guys. I'm not their janitors. And uh, I want to really change the world. The what? That bad guy is a pure soul. It is a pure soul, but the present time... Yeah, but, but let, me, let, me, let me speak. It, it's a pure soul, however, covered and doing very bad things. And so it is actually, by, by stopping the bad guys from destroying the planet, we are not only helping everyone else, we're helping them too. Because the more the bad guys do bad things, the more bad karma they're getting. So by stopping that, we're doing the best possible service to them. So we're helping everyone, we care about everyone, but that's just what needs to be done. So all of us should seriously think about that, becoming activists, uh, spiritual activists, and, and, and Let's try. Why not? I'm sorry, thank you so much. Oh.